Welcome to episode 156 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 156 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm good. That's good. Is it a dreary day where you are as well? It's super dreary. It's like, you know, a Georgia spring where we have like some very beautiful teaser days where we're convinced that, you know, spring is here and then we have boom, cold weather and rain and... And happiness. Yeah. Well, no, not for me, but I'm not complaining. Well, okay, maybe I am, but (laughs) not too badly because one of the moderators of my Facebook group shared a photo of her home and it is snowing. They've got like all this snow on the ground. I'm so jealous. Where does she live? We've got moderators all over. We have moderators in Canada. I can't remember which one she was from. We have moderators in Washington State, Canada, all over the place. Cold places. Cold places, warm places. So snowing. Love it. Well, anyway, so I was like, all right, I'm not going to complain. You know, I've been wearing shorts some days. One day I spent the whole day in my bathing suit, even though, I mean, it's, of course, way too, you know, the pool is not in any shape for swimming in the water's freezing, but I still, I spent the whole day in my bathing suit and cover up just going in and out of the sun. And so here I am today wearing my Uggs and my sweater. So I always feel a little grouchy when I have to put boots back on after, you know. (laughs) I was going to say, you know what I'm excited for? What? Fall. Oh my goodness. We got a long ways to go for that. I know. (laughs) Well, I'm ready for summer. (laughs) (laughs) I really do love summer. I think I've talked about it before on the podcast. I used to think, you know, that I loved spring so much because it was a sign that summer was here. And I loved summer because it was time off. You know, when I was a teacher, when I was a student, all my life, summer was like time off. But now that I'm retired and every day is the same day in my work schedule, I've realized I love spring for itself. I love summer for itself. It's not just because that's the magical time off because all my seasons are the same when it comes to that. I really love spring and summer. I just love them. And that's how you feel about fall and winter, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 exactly. I read something really interesting today I would like to share. What is that? It's something somebody posted in the advanced Delayed on Deny Facebook group. And so I printed it out. It's from Science Daily. And the source is the Max Del Brooks Center for Molecular Medicine. So that's that's where the, the science came from. The summary of it says, a protein in the cell envelope influences the rate of fatty acid uptake in cells. This process also appears to be altered in overweight people. So let me explain that in a little better way. But it was fascinating because, you know, I'm always fascinated, just like you are, about how our bodies are different. You know, we don't all do things the same way, which is, you know, why calories in, calories out has frustrated any of us that have struggled with weight loss, weight gain. You know, you're eating a certain number of calories. Mathematically, X, Y, Z is supposed to happen because it's just math, right? Right. But we're so finding day after day after day that this is not true. You know, we know we've talked about, in fact, recently, we've been talking a lot about how our body handles different foods, fats versus carbs. What do we do with them? And we know that, you know, it says right here in this in this article, when somebody eats more fatty acids, then the body can immediately convert into energy. The extra amount is stored. You know, our bodies can store fat. That's what we do. We're good at it. You know, we think it works as a math equation. 
But we're finding that there are a lot of factors that determine how much fat your body can stash away in your fat stores. And this article talks about a factor called protein EHD2. I don't know what that is. It's a protein that our bodies have naturally. You're not eating it. It's not like if you eat this, whatever will happen. It's just a a protein that's naturally occurring in your body. But if you're missing that protein or if you have very low levels of it, your fat storing cells take up, this is what it says in the article, significantly more fatty acids from the cellular environment. So basically, you can store fat easier. That is so fascinating. For listeners, we can put a link to that in the show notes. And the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 156. But yeah, that's right up my alley. Yeah. So, you know, basically, people who are overweight tend to produce less EHD2, which is that protein that we have in our bodies, than people with normal weight. So if you've ever felt people like you store fat easier than other people, biologically, maybe you do. Does it talk about if that protein gets upregulated from, you know, dietary or lifestyle or? This is really a summary kind of an article. So it's not the link. It, it, you know, and I just printed it out earlier, like right before we went on the air. So I haven't really studied it. I just thought it was so interesting. I wanted to mention it. I love it. It's just one of those things that, you know, the people who are like, oh, it's just calories in, calories out. We're all the same, blah, blah, blah. No, we're not. <laughs> you know, and, and for the people who have had trouble, who have struggled, you know, it just helps us to, to feel better when you know that it's not because you haven't tried hard enough. It's just maybe your body just is really great at storing fat because you don't have as much of this, you know, protein as other people do. And your skinny friend really does not store fat as easily as you do. I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but I did want to bring up sort of related to all of this because we talked about some studies last episode or we talked about, I think the whole episode we talked. I wanted to provide a quick follow-up for listeners because we had mentioned, we weren't sure one of the studies that was conducted by the army, we thought, and whether there was factors. It was a study involving participants eating 2000 calories as dinner or breakfast and the effects on weight loss. And we were thinking it was being done in army people who were being very active. So friends, listeners, it was referenced in Dr. Greger's book, How Not to Diet. The study references an entire book. So when I mentioned that that army study, that's actually, it's basically like an entire book. I'm having difficulty finding the exact study that's referenced because I think it's a study referenced in that book. So point being... I am still trying to find the source material. It looks like it was not done in exercising individuals. So I think it could possibly be valid. So I can report back on that. Oh, to clarify the valid thing. We were thinking maybe if it was being conducted in some sort of crazy army type condition. Because there was one like that that I remember seeing somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think the original one, I don't know if they were army participants, but I think they were it's clarified in the second one that they were not, they were specifically not undergoing excessive physical activity. But in any case, I wanted to bring up really quickly another study that I wanted to talk about more. But Jen, out of all the studies I've ever read, this one is taking me the longest to actually interpret. Like I'm having to like print out the diagrams and like take notes. And I mean, it's so it's so complicated. (laughs) Well, that's a good, good use of your time when, when we need to stay busy and focus. And I love that. Yeah. Well, because it makes all the conclusions very simply and very plain English, but reading through the actual methods and the data, and I'm like having difficulty 
Is that the one that you sent me the other day? Yeah. And I looked at it. I'm like, uh-uh, don't, <laughs> I don't have the brain power for this right now. That's so funny that you said it's taking you a long time. Because I was like, there's just way too much here. So I walked away from it. <laughs> the thing is, I looked at it initially. So the study is called Endogenous Circadian System and Circadian Misalignment Impact Glucose Tolerance via Separate Mechanisms in Humans. And I've been reading it and studying it already for hours, but I can at the very least say what it tested and what they concluded as far as details. If people are interested, I can report back next week because I actually am going to continue working through it until I really, really understand crystal clear what it's saying. It was a situation, though, where I sat down to read it and I was like, this looks really complicated, but I'm sure it's one of those things like normally it'll look really complicated, but you're like, once I sit down and read it, you know, sentence by sentence, think about the sentence, think about what it's saying, like I'll understand it but I'm just not quite following. So in any case, but the setup of the study and the reason I think it's so valuable is Jen and I on this podcast often talk about how a lot of studies looking at comparing like breakfast to dinner or like late night eating to early eating don't account for the fact that if you eat dinner, you know, even if it's like a bigger dinner and a smaller breakfast, that doesn't account for the fact that you, you know, were eating during the day, doesn't account for things like when you have breakfast, you're already in the fasted state. So like, you know, what does that imply? So it doesn't really account for things. So what this study did, they basically had individuals come in and do two different types of protocols at different times. So not at the same time, but they would come in, it was very tightly controlled in a metabolic ward and they used light and stuff to create their own, you know, circadian rhythms and lifestyles. So like the circadian alignment protocol, which is basically like your normal day-to-day life, they had them come in for three days, live sort of normally, and then they would have breakfast like normal at 8 a.m., then like do their life, then have breakfast like dinner at 8 p.m., go to bed, repeat, do that for three days. So that's like the normal, the control. And then they would measure after breakfast and dinner, the diet-induced thermogenesis. So this kind of relates to what Jen was saying about, you know, is a calorie a calorie? How are things processed by the body? So diet-induced thermogenesis is how many calories you actually burn from the meal itself. So if you have higher diet-induced thermogenesis, you're going to burn more from a meal than if you have less. And in general, studies tend to show, and this is not accounting for factors like the fact that you already ate and things like that, but tend to show that eating in the evening, you have less diet-induced thermogenesis. So basically when you eat at breakfast, you burn off more of those calories compared to dinner when you don't. To clarify, this is, you burn them off not from like physical activity or not from... It's from increase in metabolic rate. No, not that, because that actually doesn't change. (laughs) That was one of the few findings that I actually have pulled out of it so far, is that metabolism, so like you're resting energy expenditure doesn't really change morning and evening. It's just the energy you use to burn the food. Yeah. So like literally like your body's working harder to burn the food. Yeah. It's like if you had two people and they both had the same like energy levels. So like their metabolism wasn't any different, but you gave them two different meals. It's like one person, they just struggled more to burn it. And so it was required more effort of them. And then the other person, they burned it more easily and it required less effort. That's why I'm clarifying. It's not like their metabolism was any different. Does that make sense? Because there's a difference between like your resting metabolism and then the diet-induced thermogenesis. Yeah, that does. That does make sense. Like I can tell after I eat a meal, like for example, if it has a lot of carbs in it, I can feel the diet-induced thermogenesis. Like I can feel my body get hot. So 
a lot of fasters, I think, have reported that. So it actually talked about that. And do you want to know what it said? It was the opposite of what I thought. Okay, what? I was thinking that having carbs, like feeling like you were burning them and not storing them, that that would lead to more weight loss. You know, like it's like if you're burning the carbs immediately versus storing them. But actually, it was saying that typically people, when they have breakfast and they have more carbs, the carbs are stored as glycogen because the glycogen stores are empty from the overnight fast and actually turning the carbs into glycogen. So not burning them, but turning them into the storage form. That's actually what can increase diet induce thermogenesis. So, oh, so maybe that's what I feel because, you know, I don't eat in the morning. This is my breakfast in the evening, but I actually feel it. So maybe instead of burning them, it's my body converting them into glycogen or or storing them. Is that what you're saying? That was like the indication because then it was saying that perhaps when we take in carbs at dinner, they're actually used immediately for energy versus stored as glycogen. So it's like, think about it this way. It's like, say you have a carb, so if you burned it immediately, it would take like X amount of energy to burn it, right? But think about if you turn it into glycogen and then later burn it. In theory, you had to exert more energy overall because you had to convert it and then burn it compared to just burning it. Isn't that interesting? Well, that is interesting. So I'm, I'm going to embrace that feeling. I've always loved it because I'm like, oops, something's happening. It feels like burn, baby, burn, you know. <laughs> so whatever's happening. I don't even care. I'm just happy that my body is, I, I can just, it feels like it's ramping up and it's a feeling that I enjoy. I know exactly that feeling as well, but because we think, oh no, storing carbs, like, you know, people think storage equates to fat gain, but it's like in the case of carbs. Oh yeah. We're storing them as glycogen. Yeah. You're actually getting double burning in a way well, because you're, it requires energy to store them and then you're going to burn them as well. So in any case, that was not what the study was about. It just mentioned that in passing. The second protocol they did was the participants did three days of like normal. And then they did like they used the light to completely invert their circadian rhythm. So they had their quote breakfast at dinner time, And then they worked through the night or were awake during the night. But it was the day to them. So it was like a shift worker. They did like a typical shift worker thing. And so they were they were working against the body's, you know, daytime routine and having them have a nighttime routine instead. Yeah. And then they would have their dinner, but it would be like at 8 a.m., you know, like in the morning. And then they would go to bed. So it was a shift worker type thing. And what they wanted to see was how would that affect the diet-induced thermogenesis of the participants. Do you want to know what they found or shall we save it for next week after I've gone through it a little bit more? Let's save it for next week. Okay. It's pretty fascinating. The reason I think it's so important is because it's literally asking the question that we've been questioning. You know, if you had a completely normal, quote, breakfast, dinner pattern, but it was, you know, reversed so that technically you were eating in the morning, like eating dinner in the morning, like would that change things? But it's still eating all day, which is... Just one of those things I think that's important to note. But the thing is, the thing that it's checking is it's testing. So like when they have their breakfast at dinner, that's after fasting. Do you get what I'm saying? I do, but they're still eating all day. And I, I can't I can't separate that fact just because they still have a long, long period of time where they eat every day, which is just a factor that could affect so many things. So that's why I'm just like, 
that's that's still a huge variable to me. The fact that they're eating, whether they eat all day during daylight hours, whether they eat all day during the night hours, they're still eating for a long period of time. So I want to see some studies where they're eating in a constricted eating window over, you know, like for a long period of time after your body adjusts and see, we can't assume that it's going to be the same. That's just a variable that's so, you know, could be a huge factor. Yeah, well, I agree. But I think the variable that isn't quite in conflict with that is the diet-induced thermogenesis after their 8 p.m. breakfast because they've been fasting for 12 hours. My point is that there's still the same period of time between the meals of like the last meal and the first meal, but it's still a long period of eating during the day. So I I think that it's a piece of the puzzle. We might then think perhaps this would be the same, but we don't know. We would have to have that next study to see how it's different in someone who is fasting for 18 hours or fasting for 20 hours. I think there could be a difference. Yeah, I guess this is looking at not that compared to fasting, but compared to like using the person as their own control. So like having breakfast after a 12-hour fast in the evening compared to having breakfast after a 12-hour fast where you slept during the day. I 100% get that, that if they have a a 12-hour fast and then they eat, they burn more food if the rate of burn goes up, if that is a morning, right? The morning eating versus if that happens at the night eating, right? Well, that's what I'm going through right now. Okay. But I still am not convinced that proves that hey, we're going to burn more if we have our one meal a day in the morning versus in the evening. I'm just really intrigued because I think there's a lot. There's a lot here. I just need to actually read through it and figure out exactly what they found. But I'm just excited to see studies that are actually accounting for factors that I think oftentimes are not accounted for. It is very interesting, regardless of what the applicability of it might be to us as fasters. It is still interesting science. Yeah, their conclusion was that their diet-induced thermogenesis was more with breakfast. So shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. The first question comes from Patty. The subject is IF during COVID-19 stress and shelter-in-place orders. Patty says, hello, I have so many questions for you, but I plan to work my way through all the episodes before writing. I'm on episode number 72 now. However, these are strange times. I live in an area which is now under shelter-in-place orders working from home. I live alone, and so I'm very, very isolated. I'm in my fourth IF week. Love it. Love how I feel. No problems at all. Until Monday when I realized that all I want to do is eat and eat and eat. Clearly, this is stress eating and not real hunger. We were waiting for our governor to order us all home. I work for a state agency, and the amount of conflicting information coming our way was enormous. The stress is oddly lessened now that we are working from and confined to our homes, but still my inclination is to eat. Any suggestions for staying with the IF program that has been a breeze and a joy for almost four full weeks? So far, so good. I just keep thinking, though, that nibbling on anything would be soothing today. I haven't done it yet. A little background. I started at 16.8, quickly realized that 18.6 works better for me, and I've had a number of 24 days. No problem at all with any of these. I did decide when I noticed the stress-eating desire that I might want to ease back to the 16-8 pattern for the duration or until this becomes a more normal way of eating. An orange or two during that extra time is not a program killer. 
I will bet I'm not alone in wondering about this. Thanks for everything, Patty. Yep, Patty, you're exactly right. This is something that we're totally going through. In fact, you know, we record this in advance. So today we're recording it. It's March 23rd. And today I actually wrote a blog post called Pandemic. What's an intermittent faster to do? And it's in response to the stress that that is just really oozing out of every single person in our Facebook groups, the moderator chat. We're all just stressed out. I'm feeling it in myself. You know, I baked some bread last night and it was left over and it's sitting on the counter and I walk by and I look at it and I'm like, I could just eat that bread. I want to eat that bread. And so we might wonder, you know, what's going on? Now, there's one point I want to make about you, Patty, is that you're four weeks in. So even without the stress, we often find that people have like a hump they go through as they're getting to the end of the adjustment phase. It might be at four weeks or six weeks where your body is just about to make the the switch to fat burning. And so you feel a little bit of increased hunger from your body. So that could be part of what's happening for you right now. But I only throw that out there because you're in your fourth week of IF. But even those of us who are in our, you know, what is it for me, my sixth year of consistent IF, I'm still feeling that stress right now. So go to jenstevens.com and look for that blog post if you haven't seen it yet. But within it, I actually linked to an article from Harvard, the Harvard Mental Health Letter, Why Stress Causes People to Overeat. And I linked that in there because I want people to understand that there is a biological basis to this. There's a reason why you know, we, you know, it's all these different things going on in our bodies. You know, we have increased cortisol. We have, you know, leading to increased hunger hormones, not to mention that the foods that we start to crave, those refined carbs, like that bread that was looking really appealing to me, they, you know, make our brains feel soothed. And so you're really working against biology. And even though, you know, the stress of, like when you were first, you know, waiting for your governor to order you home, you had the stress that was more like a, an immediate stress. But now it's more of like a prolonged stress. And even though, you know, we're settling into our new normals, it's still a stressful time. You know, what's going to happen? How long is it going to go on? So we're all, I think, going to going to continue to face the feeling of stress, you know, like I was going to go to the beach with my husband And now I think we shouldn't, or maybe we can't. And I had a trip to Atlanta to record the audio book for Fast Feast Repeat. Are they going to still want me to come do that right now? So there's so many uncertainties for me, for you, for everybody. So I would just encourage everyone, first of all, acknowledge the way that you feel is normal and it's okay to feel stressed and worried. It's also okay to think, well, you know, I've got to come up with ways to cope with this. And we're all going to find those ways over the the coming weeks. The list is, we've seen it a million times. Meditate, find something to do, keep busy. But even so, we still may find that, that pull to go eat in the kitchen, to have a longer window. And some days you will. But I am using this time to lean in to my intermittent fasting practice because I knew that if I opened my window at that early part of the day with that refined carb, I would not feel better. It gives you that that negative loop that just keeps going, you know, that whole roller coaster of ups and downs that we used to live with constantly before we found intermittent fasting. And so I don't want that. And so I am resisting the urge to self-soothe with food. And 
I'm building my fasting muscle in a new way. I mean, again, I'm not new to intermittent fasting, but I'm having to, you know, pull all the strength that I've got to to help myself know, yeah, that that might feel good for a moment, but it's not going to make me feel better over the course of the day. It's not going to help in the long run. And it's it's better for me to fast and stick to my fasting routine. So, you know, easy for me to say, hard for us to possibly implement in practice, but you know, Patty and everybody listening. Just understand why we're feeling this way and that we're all feeling out of control, but we can control our fasting and we can think about it as a positive in our lives and and let it empower you. You know, gosh, I did not choose to open my window early today, even though I felt stressed and it would have felt good at that moment. Instead, I didn't. And I continued to fast and I'm letting my body, you know, experience the benefits of the clean fast. So sending hugs to you, Patty, sending hugs to everybody, really. Big old virtual podcast hugs because, yeah, it's not an easy time. What do you say, Melanie? Yeah, I have so many thoughts and I think it's so complicated and there's so many layers to it. Foundationally, I guess because you talked about, you know, the emotional need that we'll get to eat to soothe ourselves when we're having uncomfortable experiences. It's like on a foundational level, I I feel that until you have a different way of engaging with stress or with your emotions or your perception of what's going on, it will require a quote coping mechanism. Like I think we talked about this before. Like I personally don't like the word cope because I think it insinuates that what is, whatever is happening is something that is not okay unless it is dealt with with some sort of like distraction or coping mechanism. When another way of looking at it would be things are happening, things might be stressful, there are experiences that might be unpleasant. But that's okay, and you don't necessarily have to fight them, or you don't have to necessarily, you know, distract yourself from them. And I think it's people are becoming more in tune with this now because a lot of people's quote coping mechanisms in the past for stress might have been things that they could actually go do, you know, go shopping. I mean, people I guess can still go for a run, but you know, go for a run, go to the gym. You can't go to the gym. Go get a massage. Yeah. Go to a restaurant. All the things. You know, it's all the things. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden, all of those, most of those are not an option anymore. And so for people who often do meditation, for example, is because you realize what it helps you realize is that you have these thoughts and these things that happen in these uncomfortable situations, but they can actually just happen and that can be okay, like without you doing anything. So like you can sit there and be super stressed and have stressful thoughts and be worried about, you know, COVID and everything. And you can sit there and experience that. And that's okay. You don't have to go get a massage. You don't have to go run at the, on the treadmill. You don't have to go shopping. You don't have to eat. You can just sit there and it can just happen. And then after those 15 minutes, you know what? That just happened and that's okay. That's one reason that with, with the meditation practice, I think it's not so much about what's happening while meditating. It's, like the rest of your life later, because you, because then later when you have those stressful thoughts, your brain has become more in tune with the idea that, oh, I don't have to turn to something when this happens. It can just happen and I can just let it happen. And that's okay. I'll put a link in the show notes. So the episode coming out this week, not this week of our, of our podcast, but in real life right now, (laughs) the episode coming out is actually with Emily Fletcher and she wrote stress less, accomplish more. And it is actually 
I had never actually tried any sort of meditation practice. I tried, well, I tried apps and I, you know, I tried all the things, but nothing really stuck. Her book was what actually convinced me to do it. And I had her on the podcast on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. So if you're struggling right now with like stress surrounding COVID and everything and how it relates to your eating and food and all of that, definitely give that episode a listen. There's also links in it to, she has like a free meditation that I have a link to. She gives away the first three days of her online practice for free. I have links to that. So I'll put links to that episode and to all that in the show notes. Point being, coming back to the fasting. So it's like, should you, you know, stop fasting during this time because it's stressful, you know? And I always think of this example where it's like, there was something about how saying like when you, like when you come up with a dietary plan, what is that quote? It's like, make rules when you don't need rules. Have you heard that before? I don't know. I can't think of it. It was like something about like, make make rules when you don't need rules or make a plan when you don't need a plan. Because like, because basically like you don't want to be... Don't try to make the plan by the seat of your pants in the moment. Yeah. Like, because in a way, ha- doing an intermittent fasting protocol could be seen as rules in a way, you know? I'm eating between this time and this time, or I'm fasting between this time and this time. That's the sort of thing that you want to come up with when you're in, you know, a present state of mind, you're thinking of the costs and the benefits, you're thinking of what you want to gain from it, you're thinking about why you're doing it, and then you create that plan, then you can stick to it. You don't want to like reevaluate the plan in the middle of being stressed about (laughs) eating. Does, Does that make sense? So like, you know, you made this plan, you saw benefits from this lifestyle at a time when you likely weren't stressed about COVID and everything. But now that this other life stressor has come out, is that the time to completely reevaluate the intermittent fasting plan? I think it's important to keep in mind that like the factors of the stress that might be making you want to change the plan compared to whether or not you actually really need to change the plan. Although that said, because I think, I think what people are likely often will likely do is they'll think, Oh, I'm stressed. So I deserve to just, I don't need to stress myself more with fasting. But then really, oftentimes it can be exactly what you said, Jen, where actually in the end, and this is individual, but in the end, it just actually makes you feel worse. For me, 100%. Like, there's no time that saying I'm just going to not fast right now and choosing to eat all day would make me feel less stressed. Instead, I would feel more stressed. Like maybe for one second while I was eating that, whatever it was, I might feel momentarily soothed, but then I would feel worse. I would feel physically worse and then I would feel like I failed. And so then it's like more stress caused by the choice that I made to go ahead and eat to soothe myself. So it's like a vicious cycle. Exactly. It's like that quote I've said before from that Never Binge Again book where he said, you know, if you have six problems and then you overeat, then you have seven problems. (laughs) It doesn't solve (laughs) any of the six problems. So she's been having an 18-6 window, but she's thinking of easing back into a 16-8 window. So that's a lot of numbers, but basically lengthening her eating window by two hours. And she says, an orange or two during that extra time is not a program killer. So I completely 100% agree. So it's like, if you can sit down and like think about it and you think, okay, I'm going to still do intermittent fasting, but I'm creating a new plan. We're creating a new plan, but We're not doing it in the midst of like wanting to eat all the things and the stress and doing it in in reaction to that. Instead, you're thinking, what is a sustainable plan that I can still stick to, still do fasting during this time that might actually make me feel better at the same time? So if that is, you know, lengthening your window by two hours and having 
an extra orange or two during those two hours. I think that's a good example of adjusting your plan without it becoming just a way to soothe yourself. Does that make sense? At a hundred percent. And that's even something I wrote in that blog post. (laughs) That was one of the things I suggested was, you know, accepting that you might have longer windows and that's okay because we're in a different kind of, kind of situation and longer windows, you're not failing. It's okay. You know, maybe you chose a food in your eating window that you normally don't have. Also okay. Comfort foods in your eating window. So, you know, basically guilt is something I want all of us to throw away. No guilt because, you know, there may be a day when I, I do eat early, early, early because I'm stressed. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that I never would. But, you know, I, I know it won't make me feel better in the long run, but that doesn't mean I might not still do it just because we're really going through some stressful things. And, you know, I sure hope that that we flatten this curve, but, you know, things could really you know, not not to be scary here, but we just don't know. So we all just have to take it day by day and don't beat yourself up over a stress response and don't feel like you're failing or anything. Intermittent fasting is there for us. Every day we can have longer windows, shorter windows, make it feel right for you for that day. But I'm going to do my best, like I said, to lean into my fasting practice to help keep the sense of normalcy that the fasting makes me feel. Exactly. And if anybody's struggling with this, I really recommend, I know I mention it all the time, but that book, Never Binge Again, not saying anybody's binging, but just because this is basically the approach he takes. And he says, for example, you come up with your food plan and you write it down. Those are the rules. So this could, you, you know, applying it to fasting, you would like write down your hours. Those are your rules. You don't have this lengthy draining debate in your head about changing it constantly all the time. Like that's just what it is. One thing I like is he says, you can always change it. You always can. He says you do it like any like business decisions where they, you know, give time before making a new plan. So if you want to change it, if you're realizing, you know, today, oh, I really want to, you know, have a longer window, that's okay. But don't change it that moment. You can change it the next day and like write out a new plan. You give yourself time to, you know, sit on it, see was it actually a dire need to change or was it just like in that moment? So like, I think that could be a really valuable tool is saying, okay, you can always adjust your window, but when you get that urge to you know, maybe wait until the next day to write down your new plan. Because by the next day, you might not actually want to change it after all. It's true. And I find that those urges to want to soothe with food are just like a panic stricken urge in a moment. And if I don't do it, it goes away. Yep. And then I was just thinking one last thing is one person might benefit from lengthening the window. Ironically, somebody might do the complete opposite and benefit from it. They might realize because of the stress eating that they actually need, you know, a shorter window. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, because maybe if a person felt like they were, maybe if they stress eat, but they don't when they're not, then they might need to have a shorter window so that they can allow for that, you know, to like eat more in the window with a longer fasting. Yeah, these are definitely different times. And so also everybody, you know, cortisol, high cortisol, high stress can lead to, you know, lack of weight loss or even weight gain. So I want everybody to be really gentle with yourself at this time. You know, you might find yourself gaining a little weight from stress and, Maybe you aren't eating more, but it's your body holding on to that extra weight during this stressful time because that is what bodies do. We talk about the body hanging on to the excess weight. Your body may sense this is a true emergency and this is really one, you know? And here's something. So they're not a sponsor of today's episode at all, but I did just want to put this out there. Anybody who's stressing with like prepping meals and especially with the whole grocery store situation, like I said, 
not a sponsor today, but Prep Dish, they've actually specifically created a free one-week meal plan that is specifically in response to COVID, and it's using pantry and freezer-friendly ingredients only. So that's awesome. So if you're stressing about making meals in particular, definitely get this completely free. And they're just offering this basically to everybody. So it's the same link for all like podcasts that they work with, prepdish.com slash pantry. So you can go there and you will get that one week for free. So I just want to thank Allison for that. That was like a really great thing for her to do. Yes, definitely. They're awesome. Prepdish is awesome. They are. All right. Shall we do one more question before we go? Absolutely. Gosh, I can't believe how fast time is flying. I feel like that's happening every time we record now. <laughs> My whole day has been like that, actually. <laughs> time just got away from me. All right. So we have from Rachel, we have the subject is feedback and a sneaky research question. And Rachel says, Dear Jen and Melanie, this is rather long. Sorry. Firstly, some feedback. I have been with you since day one, and I love your podcast. I feel inclined to write and tell you to please don't listen to any negativity. And Rachel is talking about the negative reviews that we have gotten from time to time (laughs) from listeners who don't like our chit-chat. So Rachel says, personally, I love your so-called chit-chat. The wealth of your knowledge astounds me, and I'm so grateful for all the work, research, and information you provide to this community free of charge. I wouldn't mind reminding all the complainers to remember that apart from the odd ask of a donation, all your work has been provided free. I don't think we've ever asked for a donation. I think right when we started, we had a Patreon account. At the very beginning, yeah. But we never did anything with that. But we don't really we don't really do that anymore. We, we were figuring out, because at that time, we didn't have sponsors. So we were trying to figure out how to support it. Right. But now we have sponsors and they're supported by that. So yeah, early on, there was an occasional that, that Patreon, but now, you know, we don't do that. Anyway, so she says, all your work has been provided free. The negativity really upsets me. I particularly love the way your podcast has evolved to cover supplements, health tools, and everything in between, including your personal life updates. It all contributes to a well-rounded show. I also love your sponsorship segments too. I'm so happy that companies are realizing your potential and worth and are assisting to cover your costs. We are too, Rachel. Thank you. (laughs) Because we love the podcast. We did it for free for a long time, right, Melanie? Yes, we did. Because we love it. And we would still be doing it for free, I'm sure. But it's awfully nice to have sponsors. So thank you. And again, I want to reiterate, Melanie and I turn down a lot of sponsors. We only say yes to ones that we love. So you can be assured of that. Can I actually say something just while we're talking about it really quickly? On my other show, (laughs) I got her iTunes review today. I'm not going to read it, but she basically accused me of saying how I get all these really expensive things for free. And I buy a lot of these things. So like the chili pad that I'm obsessed with, I definitely bought that. Juve devices I bought. Yeah, I bought my own Juve. I didn't get the Juve for free. I bought it. Yeah. I literally just bought a new another pair of the blue light blocking glasses. They sent me one pair, but I just went and bought another pair. So I put my money, I buy these things just in case. That's true. That's true. Yep. So she continues to say, let's see, I have purchased many items you have endorsed and I often make suggestions to friends via your suggestions on the podcast. Well done. I have been fasting for about 10 years, sort of naturally. I just never felt like eating breakfast. Past boyfriends would often tell me I was unhealthy eating this way. Now I know my body was just doing its natural thing. 
I am vegetarian for mainly spiritual reasons, and I generally stick to a 16-8 pattern with a few longer ones chucked in every now and then and a few shorter ones if I want. Not too many rules. If I need to lose a few kilos, I'll tighten up my schedule for a few weeks and drop all the sugar. It works well. I wanted to comment on a past listener's question who was asking for herbal tea suggestions for drinking within a clean fast. I thought that perhaps the floral varieties may work as they do not trigger food thoughts for me. Please comment if you think otherwise. Chamomile is my favorite during a fast. I also enjoy hibiscus, which is very tart but super high in vitamin C. There's also rose, jasmine, marigold. Another tea to look at, which is wonderful, is Tulsi tea, which is a highly beneficial tea from India. They call it holy basil, and it's wonderful for the immune system. I want to take a break right now and just say, for example, with those teas, there are a number of teas. I hate to tell you, Rachel, I would not recommend during the fast. And chamomile, for example, is one of them. Hibiscus, I would worry about. My tea recommendation is to stick to one that is legit a bitter flavor profile. If you don't taste it and think bitter, like you would with like green tea, black tea, and coffee, then I would avoid it during the fast and save it for your eating window. Do you have anything to add about tea, Melanie? I'm pretty much on the same page, especially if somebody's just starting out. I don't think it's good to flirt with all the teas. A better thing to consider after you've been fasting for like a long time, you're comfortable with where you are, you're comfortable with what you're doing. And then if you realize that bringing back in some of these unsweetened teas, you know, you're happier with it, it's not affecting you. I think that's totally fine. But I wouldn't suggest in the beginning when you're you're still like learning about fasting, adapting to it. It's like a suggestion. I don't suggest it. Right. And I even would encourage you to, if you've been having it the whole time, take it out. And like, for example, you know, we do not recommend chamomile typically during the fast. But if you've been having it the whole time, you may not realize that it makes your fast harder. And taking it out, then you may realize, oh, that was causing me a problem. And I didn't know. You know, I didn't realize how much easier my fast could be when I was having all the things that affected me, but I didn't know they affected me until I took them out. So my advice would be stick to the basics, black tea, green tea, plain coffee, do that for a good period of time. And then, you know, experiment with some of the teas that you find to be bitter and see how they work. You should be able to figure it out. All right. So back to the question, she says, Melanie, you were talking about the environmental impacts of the plant-based diet versus a diet, including meat. And how a total plant-based diet can affect the environment just as much, if not more than a diet, including sustainably raised animals. I thought your comments were well thought through, and I wanted to add something to the conversation. The Tibetan monks teach that each individual should aim to do the least harm possible, not no harm. I like this philosophy as it's not exclusive, and it reminds us that we can be powerful just by making conscious decisions when it comes to eating. This is where choosing sustainably raised meat, like butcher box, and only eating as much as one needs, not overeating, can be so powerful. Do the least amount of harm possible to the other sentient beings is the philosophy. I thought you might like the idea. I don't know. I thought that was a really great thing for Rachel to point out. I really, really, you know, respect people who do follow these, you know, things like veganism or, you know, are very passionate about animal rights and things like that, but then still understanding that for people who choose to consume animal products, that it can be done, you know, in a sustainable way, like she says, with the least harm possible and benefiting the environment as well. So I thought that was a really, really great thing to hear. What are your thoughts, Jen? I thought so too. Same page. All right. I have a research question for Melanie as I have not heard her mention this yet, and I wonder what she will dig up. 
The supplement for discussion may also be of interest to the listener who recently wrote in regarding bone health. I wonder if you know about diatomaceous earth and what you think about it as a supplement. It consists of 85% silica. I initially experimented with it in order to see if it helped candida, and I also take it when traveling in developed countries in case of parasites. With all this coronavirus talk, this may be a great supplement to consider due to its effect on viruses. Melanie, do you know if it's supposed to have effect on viruses? I don't know. I couldn't find anything specific to that. It seemed to be more for parasites. Yeah, not viruses. That's I, Immediately, I didn't think that that would make a difference with viruses. All right. She says, when I am on a cycle of taking it, I generally get up, drink a teaspoon of it with a large glass of water, then take another glass of water, have a cup of green tea, then fast until around 12 to 1 p.m. I wonder what you think about it, A, as a supplement in general. I have read conflicting information. B, as a supplement included in a clean fast. It does not make me hungry and it tastes like dirt, so I don't think it would spike insulin. Once again, thank you so much for your wonderful podcast, Rachel from Australia. Australia. Well, thank you, Rachel, for your, A, your support, your feedback, your and your questions. There's a lot in there. There are studies on diatomaceous earth, and especially it's how it affects like parasites. Usually these are conducted in animals. I found studies both ways. I also found that it had different effects on different parasites. So it does seem to be effective to some extent. It's made of silica. The mechanism of action seems to be... I, read two different things. I've read that it like literally basically forms like micro shards so it can like slice up pathogens. And then I've also heard that there's something about the charge of it that can work as well. She talks about how she's read conflicting information. Some people say it's like the best thing ever for parasites and worms. And then some people say it's actually harmful to your intestines. I think if you take it and you see benefits, keep taking it. I don't see it being a problem breaking the fast. Like she says, it does taste like dirt. What are your thoughts, Jen? I would consider it kind of like, you know, the recommendation on taking fiber just because it's a solid object that you're, you know, you're taking in. I would avoid it. I would take it, you know, maybe to open your window personally. That's just me. I would not take it. I don't know if you'd want to take it that close to food, though, is the thing. I'm not sure. Well, take it an hour before you open your window. I mean, take it, open your window, have it and eat in an hour. I don't know. I just, I don't want to be consuming solid things, even silica. You know, it seems to me a lot like the fiber recommendation. What do you think about activated charcoal? I think that's like completely fine during a fast. Activated charcoal, aren't the particles really fine and not bulky, like a medication? It depends how much is processed, but it's usually very powdery. I mean, I take very little during the fast. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, there are very few things that I'm going to take during the fast. In fact, the only thing that I ever took during the fast, I took serapeptase. And the only reason I took it during the fast is because you have to take it away from food. And I take magnesium at bedtime. But I really, I'm not popping a bunch of things in my mouth during the fast because I really want to protect the fasted time. So I'm always going to err on the side of, I'm not going to take that. Yeah, I guess I'm a little bit, more lenient because I think there are some things that you can put into your body while fasting that are not probably not going to instigate any sort of like eating or insulin production or anything that would be in conflict to the fasted state while at the same time might actually be good for like detox or, you know, some things are even like AMPK activators. I and mean, we could go back to like coffee, for example, but yeah. 
Somebody actually just posted a really fascinating video on my Facebook group. I think it's Thomas DeLauer. Have you heard of him? Oh, yes. I've definitely heard of him. And we do not agree on a lot of the things that, that he says. So, yes. Oh, yes. Trust me. I have definitely heard of him. <laughs> he makes a lot of videos. Like, I think he at one time he was making a new video every day. So, if you're making a video every day, Melanie, think of how many things you would say. A lot of things. He had a video of... Oh, yeah. He's got a video. <laughs> well, the reason I was bringing up, the, bringing up the video was I actually pretty much agreed with everything he said in the video <laughs> at this point in my life. It was about, like, what breaks a fast. Oh, no. I don't know. He also does not think stevia breaks a fast. Okay. This was not about sweeteners. It was more about, like, reframing, like, what is your goal when fasting? So, like, that was pretty much the takeaway. In any case, there, there are definitely a lot of, you know, opinions out there, theories, thoughts, and we can just tell you what we think. I think it's probably okay during the fast. Jim would err on the side of no. So take from that what you will and more power to you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Love it. You know, I think it's actually a good thing. And then I know we have to go, but I think it's a good thing that we're like pretty much basically on the same page about most things, but then we're like slightly different because if we were like literally a, the exact same, there could be the... What's it called when you're in a like a sound bubble because you're only listening to your confirmation bias, confirmation bias. And there's another word for it. I always forget. I think it's nice when we're like that we're mostly on the same page. Yeah, I think so, too. And that's the thing. You know, for example, I love Jason Fung. I don't 100 percent agree with everything he says. I love Dr. Bert Hearing. I don't 100% agree with everything he said. Because doesn't he have those fasting teas? Right. I would not recommend those during the clean fast. No. He has a couple. They're like plain green tea, plain whatever. The other ones, they're all flavored. I wouldn't have those. Are they really? Or I wouldn't recommend them. Oh, yeah. But it's okay. See, that's the thing. We don't all have to 100% agree to still respect each other. Exactly. That's it. I respect people as long as they are like open to understanding that we don't have to agree. It's when people are like, this is completely 100% the way it is. And then I'm like, how can I have engaged in a meaningful dialogue if you're not at least open to considering other possibilities? I love my husband so very much, but he's one of those people that if you have a different opinion, he cannot understand it or extend it or like, you must be crazy for not thinking what I think. It's very frustrating. <laughs> and I'm like, why don't we just agree to disagree? He's like, no, you must believe this or you're so wrong. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to. And see, I'm so stubborn. I'm never going to pretend to agree with somebody. So like, he'll be all super upset that I'm not agreeing with him. And I'm like, look, I don't even care. I'm not going to agree with you. Do you want me to just say I agree with you so we can stop talking about it? And he's like, no. And I'm like, well, there's no way to win this conversation. So how about let's just quit? <laughs> Because I'm okay that he doesn't agree with me. He is not okay that I don't agree with him. I'm totally down with agreeing to disagreeing. I think that I think that's a healthy approach. Yeah, I think so too. But one day, maybe when I'm like 70, I'll just agree with everything. I'll be like, yeah, you're right. And then I'll, you know, but I'm still not at that point. <laughs> it would certainly make life easier if I wasn't so stubborn. But, you know. Or maybe one day he'll understand that he he does not have to change my mind. If my mind is not changed, I'm not going to pretend like it's that I think something else, but I'm always open to changing it. That's the thing. But it's not going to automatically change. That's true. So even when I'm 70, I'm not going to be doing that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions to the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. Or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. 
The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you can get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can get all the stuff that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. You can follow Jen. She's Jen Stevens. Me, I'm Melanie Avalon. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. All right. Anything else from you, Jen, before we go? No. Just, I just want to tell everybody, you know, stay strong in these uncertain times. And, you know, we're, we're all learning how to get through it together. It's a good time for podcasts, right? This is true. It's very true. I love seeing how people are getting, you know, creative with the way that they're interacting with others. Like I called my mom the other day and had such a great conversation with her for longer than we ever talk on the phone. And so, you know, this, this time, see it as a positive we're slowing down. We're reconnecting. I'm choosing to try to get rid of the stress and see it as a blessing, even though, you know, maybe in four weeks, something terrible will happen and I won't feel that way. But right now I'm choosing to see it as a blessing. 100%. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.